Welcome to another powerful message from One Life OK. We really hope you enjoy it. You know, as um, you know, Cece and I, we prepare our parts of the word completely separate from each other. Um, but when she was telling me her that part that she just revealed to us, I could see why he was wanting us to understand um, just the 555, the summoning to what your pain really was redeemed. I mean, like I can just see it so clearly. Can you that wherever you've experienced something that you thought was going to be the problem child, it becomes the part, the tractor beam for other people to come to your life. And so that's what he's doing. He's going to be summoning those different people to our lives. And so he's trying to prepare us, you know, to have, I like how the Bible says, have an answer for why you believe like you believe. And this is that preparation process is making sure that we align our hearts with what he's saying right now. And so anyway, the next part that Cece's going to be revealing is really deep. Not that that part wasn't, but, um, you know, again, we're just, um, God just asked us to release what he says to us in the fullness of it. And so we will dissect it all throughout the year and, um, it'll be good. So let's welcome Cece as she releases the next part. Thank you. Okay, this is going to be a deep part, but it's different. You know, Holy Spirit knows what we're ready for, what we can handle. So I had a dream three weeks after I wrote the word that we just discussed. I um, had really been, I knew there was something on that word, and I'd just been kind of meditating on it. And um, I could feel the excitement and the fascination and the awe and this draw just pulling me into this divine mystery. And so I was just like, whoa, like, what are, what are you saying? Like, what are, what's the, what's the fuller mystery? Like, there's more. He was inviting us into something more that I could tell I couldn't see yet. And I even, um, you know, was studying the word and reading all around all these parts, all those verses and almost got into a lockdown because I'm like, I can't, I can't see it. I can't find it, you know, but I knew there was something there. And so as God is so good to do, he just dropped a dream into my mind as I slept, like just this crazy supernatural dream I couldn't have thought of in a million years on my own. And it was pretty direct. I didn't, didn't require a lot of interpretation even. So that is where we get this dream. We can, and this next section is the tree of life has been rewritten. And I would say it like this. I was, I was laying in bed last night asking the Holy Spirit about this, and I've, he's been helping me see. I can see the overarching picture and the overarching goal, but I feel like what this word is and can this, this message in, through this dream is in connection to the previous one is sort of an outline. Have you ever, you know, if you have you ever used a coloring book, you know, now it's a lot easier to be artistic in a coloring book. That is just a blank sheet of paper, right? 
Sometimes a blank sheet of paper can be intimidating. It's like, I don't know where to start. I don't know what to start. I don't even know what I'm drawing. Now, the artists in here, I'm sure, they're like, oh, that's nothing. That's, you know, nothing. It's just so, this is my gift, my natural talent. But for me, it can be a little daunting. So at times, I actually will still occasionally write color in a coloring book because I just want to, you know, use all the colors and have fun of throwing some color around. But I don't want the pressure of having to have know the structure. Well, I feel like the Holy Spirit told me last night, this is our coloring book for this coming year. Okay, this is the outline of what we can look forward to that this previous word that we just discussed, it says the divine mystery is being revealed and we, um, it's, we're, we needed to have some context to work with this year. And that's what I feel like this dream tells us. And so let me tell you the dream real quickly. It's, it was rather short. Um, in a dream, I saw that there was a large tree, which I knew to be the tree of life. I then heard this phrase, the tree of life has been rewritten, but only the children can see it. The tree of life has been rewritten, but only the children can see it. It was just plain as day. I saw in the dream that the children could somehow view a cross section of its trunk at the base of the tree as if they could just like pick it up and look at it, you know. The cross section showed writing that circled around its center where an emblem of a snake was. I knew that the emblem represented that the snake now ran through the center of the tree from top to bottom. I believe that's up on the slide, right? And you can see it in your books, the, the, um, the emblem there, which our artists um, illustrated that so well, just like I saw it in the dream. And so later in the dream, I began to began just the very beginning of interpreting the original dream. So I had the dream, and then within the dream, I was trying to interpret the dream. And I, and I said in my dream that God was emphasizing the importance of keeping his message authentic, instructing us not to rewrite what he has said. Okay, so that's, that's all the components of the dream right there. So the tree of life has been rewritten, but only the children can see it. And there was this emblem with a snake in the middle, an emblem of a snake. And I knew that that represented the snake ran all the way through the tree from top to bottom. And I, my first interpretation in the dream was don't rewrite what he said. Okay. So when I first got up and I'm thinking about this dream, I thought, well, at face value, this looks like a warning dream. Like don't rewrite and, you know, don't rewrite what God said. That's, that's pretty sobering thing, right? To write. I don't want to do that. Um, and a snake, honestly, that's not a good thing. When I first, my first thought of a snake is not something that I associate with something good. And so I was like, wow, I wonder what you're saying. Cause this was, had that intensity about it. This was just a bam. This is the Holy Spirit dropped this and we need to look into this emblem. So I remembered that I'd heard a verse somewhere before about, well, if anyone adds something or some subtracts to some something. And so I Googled it, right? Scripture on adding or subtracting. Okay? I'm just sharing with you how it rolled out. Because remember, again, this is just the prophetic message. We can do deeper teaching on all of these parts later. Okay. But right now, this is just what was God saying. And so sure enough, the verse that I was thinking of was in Revelation 22. And it's, it says, I testify to everyone who hears the prophetic words of this book. 
If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone subtracts from the prophetic words of this book, God will remove his portion from the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. So that cannot be a coincidence that the adding and subtracting also mentions the tree of life that was in the dream. I knew this was my confirmation scripture that we were onto something with this. A scripture that talks about both right there. And it was just one. Like there's only this one that popped up on my search, right? I didn't have to sort through one and find what I liked or anything. This was it. (laughs) It was like, wow, okay, what is going on here? So I spent some time um, thinking about the dream, and I very quickly got a download on what he was saying, and it is incredible. And so I want to share that with you. Now, I the it turns out for, I think everybody knows Garden of Eden, right? There were the two trees. There's the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Well, without doing a deep study, which I've never done a deep study, I've never studied the tree of life. I can't say that I ever have. And so my probably just face value understanding of the tree of life was like, well, if you eat of the tree of life, then you have life. Okay. It's that simple. Have life. If you eat from the tree, that's good. Knowledge tree of knowledge and good and evil bad. Okay. (laughs) Cause if you look back at Genesis two, where it talks about the tree of life, actually, it just says the tree of life is there. And then it has these instructions on, well, don't eat from this tree. This is the only tree you can eat from every other tree in the garden. And here's the tree of life. But don't eat from this one, the knowledge of good and evil. And that's kind of all it says about it. So, I I mean, inherently, I think, well, that was a good tree. Thankful for the tree of life. And I knew it had some symbolism, but it's not something I really sought out. So just to say that's where I was starting from as I began to Um, hear his message in this. So let's look a little closer at, I broke the dream elements down into these four different elements, and I'm going to talk about each one so you can hear what God is saying. And it does require a slight bit of history to understand what is the snake about, a snake in the center of the tree. Like I said, I don't normally associate snakes with something good, but I remembered that there was something in the Old Testament where a snake was lifted up on a staff. And so I looked that up. And that's where we have Numbers 21. Let me read this little portion to you. It says, So the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord so that he will remove the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. Then the Lord said to Moses, make a fiery serpent of bronze and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten will live when he looks at it. So Moses made a serpent of bronze and put it on the pole, and it happened that if a serpent had bitten a man, when he looked at the bronze serpent, he lived. Now, historically, this is when this takes place in the wilderness, where the Israelites are in the wilderness after they've been set free from Egypt, but they haven't made it to the promised land yet. And there was this plague sort of thing released where there was just snakes were released everywhere. Okay, so people were getting bitten by snakes and dying. And so they that's why they cry out and they realize they've sinned against God. And so that's how why Moses begins this prayer. So if It turns out, I'm just going to jump to the end of this point here, the bronze serpent is a symbol for Jesus Christ. 
okay? A serpent raised up on a pole is symbolic of Jesus Christ. This footnote I pulled from the Holy Bible recovery version. It says, the bronze serpent is a type of the Lord Jesus who was crucified in the likeness of the flesh of sin as our substitute and replacement that we might look at and believe into him and have eternal life. Now, it turns out the New Testament confirms this. I didn't even know that was there either. But I, I read it, but it didn't stand out to me. John 3.14 says, Jesus is speaking here, and he says, And just as Moses in the desert lifted up the brass replica of a venomous snake on a pole for all the people to see and be healed, so the Son of Man is ready to be lifted up. So that those who truly believe in him will not perish, but be given eternal life. For here is the way that God loved the world. He gave his only son, unique son, as a gift. So now everyone who believes in him will never perish, but experience everlasting life. So good, right? Footnote there from the Passion, Brian Simmons. It says the brass snake symbolizes sin and disease. The Hebrew uses the word seraph, which means a fiery one, a fiery serpent. All of humanity has been bitten by the snake of sin. But Jesus was raised up on a cross for all people to see. We only need to look to him and believe, and we are healed and saved from sin. Right? So it's this incredible symbolism that God uses even throughout history. It's a foretelling. Remember, the kingdom of God is always advancing. So what happened that all those years ago in the wilderness for the Israelites was a foreshadowing of what would happen when Jesus went to the cross. And so just in case you're still having trouble connecting, okay, because for me, I was like, yeah, why would you use a snake? Like, why a snake to symbolize Jesus? And I, this is how I connected it, okay? We hear in the other scriptures, we talk about the flesh, you know, like the flesh represents sin, right? If you think about it. So you could say that Jesus appeared as a fleshly man in the natural and hung on the cross as such. The bronze serpent appeared the same as the serpent that bit the people. So a snake is what bit the people, and it was a snake that hung on the, on the pole. And if they looked at it, they were healed from that snake. So Jesus on the cross, you have to look at it as when he was on the cross, he, that was him representing our sin. That was an embodiment of sin, paying the judgment price on the cross so that we could be washed clean. Because, you know, God um, has always said we would need, right? We would need a sacrifice. We had to, there was a payment for sin. God didn't change his mind and say, I'm going to make this one exception. So there had to be a payment for our sin. So just as the snake that bit them is what they had to look up on the pole, we had to look at our own sin up on that cross in the form of a man and say, that should be me. That, that's me. That's why when you receive, receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you're supernaturally on that cross. You supernaturally are one with him and you're on that cross. And so it's like looking at the thing that bit you on the cross and bronze symbolizes judgment. So it's the judgment of the thing on the cross that saved us. So it's the judgment of the flesh on the cross when we look on it. And so that's why God symbol used a snake. Because it was a snake that was biting them, killing them, poisoning them. And that's what was hanging on the pole. Isn't that incredible? I mean, oh, 
God is so incredibly poetic, isn't he? Wow. So, so I knew that that's what that represented, the snake emblem there that ran through. It was represented Jesus. The snake symbolizes Jesus on the cross. So he now stands, so the dream then says that he now stands at the center of the tree of life from top to bottom, because in the dream, the snake ran all the way through the, dream, the tree from top to bottom. So the tree of life was rewritten by Jesus. Okay, the tree of life was rewritten by Jesus by being on the cross, and he now is the center of the tree of life. So just to further explain the little um, the emblem that we've illustrated there for you, um, the names across the top, those are the names, the Hebrew and, the, and Jesus for Yeshua in Hebrew, and then Yesus in Greek. And so we, we chose those for, obviously, this is all about Jesus, and it the Hebrew and the Greek representing both the Old Testament and the New Testament and the what transpired between those, okay? So that's what those are on the emblem. Now, there's an interesting PS that I found in Scripture that I wanted to point out about the bronze serpent again. In 2 Kings 18, it says, Hezekiah did right in the sight of the Lord in accordance with everything that David his father had done. He removed the high places of pagan worship, broke down the images, memorial stones, and cut down the Asherim. He also crushed to pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made. For until those days, the Israelites had burned incense to it, and it was called Neshutan, Neshutan, a bronze sculpture. So stuck in scripture there is another mention to this bronze serpent that's now I'm seeing in a dream on this on this cross section of the tree of life. And so what is he saying there? In the Amplified, there's a footnote, and it says, the bronze serpent had served God's purpose for it. And Hezekiah observed correctly that it was nothing more than a piece of art. Unfortunately, the Israelites had forgotten that the serpent had been nothing more than a tool of God and they had been worshiping the sculpture itself as if it were a god. Now, this is many, many years later, right? You understand this is many, many years later after they'd been in the wilderness. Now they've been in the promised land, and, and we've had King David and or Hezekiah and all of that. And so all this time, they had turned it into an idol. They, you know, they came out of that. They came out of idol worship, right? They came out of worshiping all these different gods, and so it was kind of their natural tendency. And I'm sure they were incredibly grateful to have been saved from death by all these snake bites, but they turned it into an idol. And so part of Hezekiah's um, cleaning house was to destroy that bronze serpent. So what is that saying to us now? This is what I heard. If we just say the bronze serpent represents Jesus on the cross and Hezekiah destroyed the serpent, what is he saying to us? I believe it's this. God provided a way for the Israelites to be healed because they were his people and he had a vision for them to fulfill. A vision for them to fulfill. But rather than pursuing the why behind God's choice to heal them, they got stuck idolizing the bronze sculpture. Likewise, Jesus was lifted up on the cross for us for a reason. 
we should ask ourselves, have we gotten stuck idolizing what took place on the cross or are we following Jesus in his resurrection into our greater purpose? That's, I mean, I'm getting the Holy Ghost goose skin right now. Have we done the same thing? Has humanity done the same thing? Have we turned what saved us into an idol? Or, or are we asking why? Was it, what's it for? How many hundreds of years have gone by where we've idolized what happened on the cross instead of what happened when he was resurrected? Now, remember, that's what that first word said, the resurrection eyes. I could tell already. I could tell with, there was a three-week time period between that word and this dream, and I, that the focus was on something more, something more, on the resurrection. Jesus described in a way I'd never heard before. He said when he looked at our wounds, he's like, I'm not just looking at you in spirit. I'm in a physical body. I'm a body that's been resurrected. I'm, this, I'm interacting with you now in a physical body that was resurrected from the dead. That's no small thing. And so this emphasis on the resurrection is again pointed to here because we don't want to idolize what took place on the cross. Now, interestingly, there was a time in the past, I didn't understand this, um, years and years ago, I actually asked an employee at Mardell's, this is, I didn't know, you know, just I'm at Mardell's, I like it because they talk about Jesus. And I was like, well, why do some people have Jesus on the cross and some people don't? I didn't know. I didn't grow up in church. You know, I didn't hear anything about that. So he explained to me that it's normally the, the Catholic religions have Jesus on the cross. And so that's called a crucifix. And so if you think about it and you've noticed, they will have Jesus on the cross hanging on their walls. Well, the Protestant Christians don't display him on the cross because he's been resurrected. So what they the cross they hang up is a reminder of the price that he paid for us, but he's not on the cross anymore because our God raised him from the dead. He wasn't just a man that was martyred for us. He was resurrected from the dead by our God because he's that big and he has that heart and he's that good. And so there's an obvious distinction there about what we focus on. And so I'm not making a big deal about any different, you know, whether you're Catholic or Protestant or anything like that. I'm just saying there's something there that we need to look at because if we focus too long on what took place on the cross over what was resurrected, then we're doing what it said they did here. We're idolizing the horror that took place on the cross rather than the supernatural glory that was displayed when he was resurrected. And so, of course, we don't ever want to lose sight or forget about the sacrifice that Jesus made on the cross. That is no small thing, and I'm not minimizing that at all. But what did he do it for? Why did he do that? Don't you think he would rather us look at the why than just look at what he did over and over again? Because he's not reliving it. He's not reliving the cross. He's not reliving that pain and suffering and that horrible death. He's not. He's resurrected into glory. He's seated at the right hand of the Father in heavenly places. He's ruling and reigning. He's glorified in his divine nature. So why don't we focus on that more? Why is our attention not on, uh, on that? We don't want to get stuck in small thinking, in orphan mindsets, thinking I'm so pitiful that that thing was greater that he did for me, was greater than being resurrected 
Because remember when he was resurrected that he gave us back the keys. He gave us back the authority and the power. So we need to be shifting our attention to the resurrected Jesus. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is our focus for it demonstrates that it was all unto a divine purpose. And I think we all know in here that's a big change the church is going through. The church has been dormant and not active, not operating with power on the planet, right? The body of Christ is waking up, though. The bride is waking up and stepping into her real power, and this is directly tied to it. It's time, The bride is saying, you know what? We've spent long enough feeling bad that Jesus had to die on the cross for us, and now we're ready to do, do the why that he did it. And, and what does that look like? What does that look like for me to be a resurrected bride and not a bride who's just in remorse and grief for what Jesus had to do for us? So it's, again, a nudge to shift our focus there. So that's the, the snake symbol and what that represents. So let's look at the concept of the tree of life has been rewritten. That's our second element of the dream. What does it mean when he said that in my dream? The tree of life has been rewritten. What does that mean? Well, it turns out, remember I said it was Revelation 22, um, the end of 22, right, where I first found the verse that connected it and confirmed. There's something about adding and subtracting the tree of life. It was at the end, towards the end of Revelation 22. Well, I thought, well, let me look up what's going on in Revelation 22. I'll start at the beginning. So I look up at Revelation 2, 22, at the beginning of the chapter, and it says this. I think Tisa just read this verse, actually. Um, then the angel showed me the river of the water of life flowing with water, clear as crystal, continuously pouring out from the throne of God and of the Lamb. The river was flowing in the middle of the street, of the city, and on either side of the river was the tree of life with its 12 kinds of ripe fruit according to each month of the year. The leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. Now, I have to say my first confirmation, I had my confirmation, my first observation was this. Compared to the tree of life described in Genesis, which I said they didn't talk much about it in Genesis. It doesn't say much. It just says in the center of the Garden of Eden, there's the tree of life. Well, this in Revelation 22, which is the very last chapter of the book of the Bible, okay? It's the culmination of everything. Last chapter of the last book of the Bible. It describes that the tree of life is now on either side of the river. Something's different. That's all I had to see. Something's different between the tree of life in Genesis and the tree of life in Revelation. The first book and the last book, something has changed. Okay? I, there is, and I've looked into it, and it's an overwhelming, incredibly cool, fascinating study of all that we could talk about, that what transpired, and what's even directly said, and what it symbolizes. But for now, let's just say it's true. The tree of life was rewritten. The tree of life has been rewritten. Between Genesis and Revelation, the tree of life was rewritten. It's different now. And we've demonstrate, we should, we've illustrated that in our picture of showing the tree of life. There's a river running through it. It just said that the tree of life was in the middle. In Genesis, it didn't say that there was a river running through it before. Something's changed. So it was 
rewritten. So let's take a closer look then. What is God really saying? Because remember, this is just a message to us, a prophetic message of what he's saying. So in looking closer, I read Revelation 21 and 22. And in summary, it is Revelation 21 and 22 describe the new heaven and earth. Remember I said earlier, that's the ultimate destiny for God's plan, that the earth will be remade and there'll be a new heaven. It's where John, in these chapters is where John describes hearing God enthroned say, I am making everything new. And it also says it has been accomplished. He said both. Okay. I'm making everything new and it's accomplished. So the whole concept of time with God, you know, is a weird thing. It's fascinating in itself, but both. I like to hear that everything's made new, and I love to hear that it's been accomplished because it's not a far-off plan. It's saying it's done, right? So again, this is a now word. This is a now word, and it says this divine mystery is now being revealed. So it's not a far-off thing. Now, so it's where, again, I said John describes hearing this. I'm making everything new. It's been accomplished. An angel then invites John to see the new holy city. He says, do you want to see? Do you want to see, John? Do you want to see the, my finished work and what it looks like? The one that, the new holy city that descends out of heaven from God. <clears throat> How does the angel say it? The angel invites John to come see the new holy city by saying, come, I will show you the beautiful bride, the wife of the lamb. He doesn't say, come and let me show you this new cool city. He says, I'm going to show you the beautiful bride, the wife of the lamb. John's first, first described his vision of the holy city being revealed as being like a pleasing bride that has been prepared for her husband, adorned for her wedding. Who do we know the bride is? That's us. That's us. So the end of the story, the end of Revelation, John is invited to see that I've made everything new and it's been accomplished, and it's the bride. It's the new holy city that descends directly from God, but it's the bride that's been prepared. So this whole thing that we're talking about today is preparation. The resurrection eyes word and what God will do with your pain and disappointment through the process of resurrection is the process of preparing the bride. It's the leading to this, the bride that has been prepared. So our takeaway from that, it says, now remember, this is that the tree of life was in the new holy city. That's where they were describing it to be. The tree of life is in the new holy city. That means the tree of life is in the bride. If the bride is the holy city and the tree of life is in the holy city, that means the tree of life is in the bride. We're the bride. The tree of life is in us. Okay? Now, these two chapters illustrate the finished work of Jesus. In fact, I love that Jesus' final recorded words are in this chapter. And he starts off his final words that are recorded with saying, Behold, I come quickly. Wonderfully blessed is the one who carefully guards the words of the prophecy of this book. Again, we're at guarding the words. Don't add, don't subtract. 
guard the words. He's really, he said, it's like really hit on multiple times. And I, I'm, we could spend hours just going through this chapter, okay, these two chapters. So I'm just trying to condense it. In the rest of this chapter, a couple of the highlights, the angel testifies of how trustworthy and true the description of the new holy city is. Just in case you don't believe him, just you think, yeah, you think that's too good to believe, that's true. It's recorded in scripture that the angel said, and it's really true. It's really true. You can trust it, and it's true. Okay, that's like an extra step. Like, let me just help you out. I've said it. I mean, you remember Abraham doubted when the angel talked to him, and he just got silenced for the whole nine months. He doubted, and he was like, I don't know if I can believe it. Gabriel didn't say to him, no, trust me, it's true. It's very trustworthy. You can trust in this. He was like, well, I'm Gabriel. I'm talking to God, you know. So there, think this is mercy. This is God's mercy that the angel actually is recorded as saying, this description is trustworthy and true. He also, in this chapter, it also says Jesus says he's coming quickly, and it says that he intends for these words to be shared. So guard them, but share them. Both are, are, we're instructed, guard the words, don't add or subtract from them, but share them. They are not to be kept secret. And of course, the Holy Spirit and the bride say come in this chapter. In summary, I would say these chapters just tell the story of how the Garden of Eden was restored, transfigured, and revealed as the holy city. It's the, the culmination of Eden being restored, transfigured, he revealed as the holy city. What did we talk about in Resurrection Eyes? Eden had to be healed. Eden had to be restored. But Eden wasn't just restored to its former nature. It was transfigured into something new. It was transfigured into something new, just like he said that he wants to do for us. When we're healed, we're transfigured. We're made into something dramatically more beautiful, right? That's what that definition said. So Eden, what happened to the Garden of Eden between Genesis and Revelation is our story of what he does. And if, he, if it all symbolizes us, then this is confirmation of what he said he would do in the resurrection eyes. It's confirmation. The Garden of Eden isn't the same as it was in Revelation as it was in Genesis. It's transfigured and revealed. It's the holy city. It's not just a garden on earth. That's incredible paradise on earth. It's the holy city. Okay? That is a confirmation of what he said we could experience through our normal everyday pain and disappointment. That is no trouble to find, right? So the holy city is the restored garden of Eden from Genesis, only it isn't just restored to its original glory. It is rewritten. It's resurrected, transfigured, and revealed in its completed glorified state. So this confirms what he's saying in the resurrected word and why he gave me the dream that said the tree of life has been rewritten. The tree of life was rewritten. Okay, are we solid on that? It was rewritten. One of the tidbits that I thought I would just throw in here about how the Garden of Eden changed, how this changed. Actually, when I was writing this, this just came to me. The Garden of Eden is no longer, the Holy City is no longer just a place for God to meet with us. You remember in the garden, Adam and Eve, they weren't with God all day, but God came occasionally in the cool of the day. And walked with them. It was a meeting place. 
it was a meeting place back then. But now it's God with us. The holy city is the bride. It's the culmination of God joined with mankind. It's what Jesus said in, in the resurrected word, that when he was resurrected, he was resurrected into his divine de design, the perfect model of God joined with mankind. It is God with us, Emmanuel. What's what we just celebrated. Emmanuel means God with us. So the holy city is, is when we're joined as one. It's not just a meeting place. Jesus came to be with us so that we could be joined to him. We join with him on the cross and are resurrected with him as his bride, as one with him through divine marriage. That's the best way, the greatest way that the garden was rewritten between Genesis and Revelation. And as I said, there are so many that would be so fun to study, so many ways that it was rewritten, but that's the greatest of them all. It's, it is incredibly, incredibly beautiful. Wow, and what a call up, right? We are more than we thought we were. So since we are one with him, if the tree of life is in the holy city and the holy city is the bride, that in the tree of life is in us, then we too are called to rewrite the tree of life. Jesus rewrote the tree of life so that we could be one with him and continue to rewrite the tree of life. Are you getting it? Yeah. The tree of life has been rewritten between Genesis and Revelation by Jesus and all that he did so that we can be once again be invited to it feed from it, be healed by it, but also so that we can be it. So if you remember in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve got kicked out and the, there were guards placed so that no one could access it. No one could access the Garden of Eden anymore. And so we were cut off from the Garden of Eden. But because of the redemptive work of Jesus, the tree of life was rewritten and now we have access to it again. It's a brand new thing. But we don't get to just visit with God there. We get to be one with God there. We get to be one with Jesus there. So that means the tree of life has been rewritten. Jesus rewrote it. We are called to rewrite it too. Jesus rewrote the tree of life so that we could be restored to his access. But in his rewriting, he also rewrote our identity embedded in the genetic code of the rewritten tree of life is our DNA. The rewritten tree of life is embedded in your DNA. Now, just as a fun little confirmation, I knew from my science background and stuff that I remembered some language and stuff about how our bodies are made and how DNA and RNA and all of that. And I remembered that it's all terminology about writing. It's all writing. There's transcription. That's a rewriting. There's translation. That's translating what was written. There are the genetic code. They're actually called codons, and they're considered words that make up our physical DNA. So it's once again another thing where our natural bodies reflect his whole design. So in, I, I found this, um, this example even that in this definition, in the transcription process, DNA sequences of a gene are rewritten by RNA. <clears throat> now, we could talk about that a lot more, but 
basically DNA, your whole genetic code is, is inside the cell, and RNA has to come and it, it, it transcribes in the transcription process what the code says, and then it carries it out of the cell for into other parts of your body where it's going to then trigger the generation of a protein with amino acids which make up the whole, our whole body. So the RNA comes in and literally rewrites what the code said in DNA and then takes it out and makes it happen. And so that's just, I mean, and why did humanity call it that? Why did scientists decide to call it words and transcription and written? We literally, our DNA was literally written, okay? God is the author, the author and the perfecter. He's the creator. He's an author. Anyways, it's just confirmation to tie us together. The tree of life has been rewritten. It's our design genetically in our DNA to rewrite the tree of life. It's in our physical man is doing it all the time, all the time, all the time. And now we're called to do that in a fuller and more full level to rewrite the tree of life ourselves. And so why? What's the purpose of it all? Tisa mentioned it. Isaiah 55, 5. I'm sorry, maybe back up the, in the Revelation 22 at the beginning. The leaves of the tree of life are for the healing of the nations. Or, and this footnote says, are given for service. The tree of life was rewritten, and it bears fruit every month, right? And in its season. And it says at the end of that verse that the leaves of the tree of life are for the healing of the nations. So this is what connected me with, with, with Tisa's um highlighting of Isaiah 55. Why does it, will the nations come running to us, come running to follow us, as it says in Isaiah 55, 5? It says, because the Holy One of Israel will have glorified us. And so I believe this is saying he will have glorified us by rewriting the tree of life in us. That's the glorification. It's talked about in the resurrection eyes word and in the tree of life being rewritten. You're glorified when you're in your, your, your final, your, your ultimate design. So the trees, the leaves of the tree of life are for the healing of the nations. That's our why. That's why we need to go to him with our raw heart condition and be willing to let him look at us and heal us so that we can receive that resurrection eyesight so that when we look on other people, we can actually prophesy over their wounds. And this is a supernatural thing, not just with words, not just with language, Remember, oh, there's so much going back to that 2022 word of the year where it was what our thoughts are more than our words even. Before we speak a thought, it's what we've thought and the inclinations of our mind, our imagination. And so if we are viewing life ourselves with resurrection eyesight, if we are viewing resurrection eyesight, then our first thought is that there's going to be resurrection in that person. And then our words will follow, which create, Right? That's our why. The leaves of the tree of life are for the healing of the nations, and we will be glorified through the rewriting of the tree of life in us. And likewise, in, in Micah 4, the other verse that Tisa had, why will the people of Micah 4 flow like rivers up the mountain of the eternal one? Why would they? Because the tree of life is rewritten in us and carries the healing of the nations. It says in Micah 4 that I'm, we're going to, let's go to them and have them teach us their ways. Let's go and seek what they have. Why would, why would there be something for them to seek unless we were rewritten as the tree of life? You're all with me on it? Yeah. Okay. Another emphasis here. Jesus does the rewriting, not us. 
okay? There was still that thing out there, right? Don't add or subtract and guard the words. So why was that in my dream? Why was that highlighted? There's still something about that. And so this is what I heard from the Holy Spirit. If we add or subtract from what Jesus has written, it says our portion, our portion will be removed from the tree of life. Since this is no longer just about what is provided for us, this points to what will be missing from the tree of life when we are missing. Your portion, you're a part of the tree of life. If you add or subtract from what God has said when he rewrote between Genesis and Revelation, if his message and his work, if you add or subtract from his rewriting, your portion will be missing from the tree of life. It's not about whether we're going to get our needs met from the tree of life. No, but you, the tree of life will be missing a portion because you're missing. So if I, I've, I connected it this way, that if we subtract from what God has said, how do we subtract? By doubting, by speaking against, not having faith, even having false humility then our contribution as part of the tree of life will be missing. You're taking away from what God said when we do those things. And I'm sure there's more of them that we could think of, that we, we could identify that, wow, when I do that thing, when I think that way and we have that mindset, I'm actually saying God didn't really say all that he said. And that the rewriting that Jesus did didn't really say all that he said. That's taking away from the prophetic rewriting of the tree of life that Jesus did between Genesis and Revelation. If we add to what God says, what are some ways of, that we might add? Unsanctified mercy. Now that's a term I use, and that is when that involves um, enabling and validating people who are making choices against God, where we have, God has a heart of mercy, but he doesn't want us to be merciful with someone who's about to burn up in a, in a fire or have a flood in their house. God wants us to say, hey, you're about to have a flood in your house. You're, you're in danger. You're, you're going down a path that's going to hurt you. You're not going to be happy with the outcome. You're, you're going in a way that's true. Mercy is telling the truth. So that's well, one thing that you know religion has done is said we have to have that true Christians are just merciful. And you just tell everyone, you're good. You're good. I love you and you're good the way you are. Well, that's just not true. It's just not true. All of us are not good the way we are. We're all needing to be something better. We're all in the process of advancing. And so it it is not love. And I had to really, I have a real heart of mercy. Like I'm a high mercy person. And so that was, a, I mean, this is still a thing. I have to guard against operating with what's called unsanctified mercy. Yeah. She helps me because I just, I have this overwhelming heart towards people and it is the way God made me. It's the way God made me to have this overwhelming love and compassion for you. But I, my compassion becomes an obstacle for you and trips you up if I keep that from, from speaking truth to you. And so that's what's unsanctified mercy. And that's adding, that's adding to what God said by saying, Actually, you can do all that and still be okay. You can, you know what I'm saying? Um, some other ways withholding truth from people or operating with the religious spirit. The religious spirit, I had recently realized that by the time Jesus was on the earth, the Pharisees had added 
I can't even, I don't remember the number, an incredible number of laws to what the Torah actually said. So yes, the Old Testament had a lot of very specific laws, but then the people added to it by interpreting it and saying, I think he meant this, so let's make that a law too. I think he meant this. So it became this huge thing that's not even what God said. They added to it. If you operate with the religious spirit that shames and guilts and condemns, you are adding to what God said because God loves to, God's love does not say that. If you're condemning people, if you're going, if you're so far on the I have no mercy side and you're just condemning people all over, you know, swing the pendulum the other way, then you're adding to what God said. It's not his heart. We've got to be all about his true heart of what true love is. So our contribution is removed. As the tree uh, from the tree of life, if we add or subtract. So I think that's what that part was speaking to. Now, don't you think it's fascinating that in the dream, the line was, the tree of life has been rewritten, but only the children can see it. Only the children could see the tree, could see the cross-section of what had happened. I mean, that's just fascinating to me. So we know, we talk about this, and we talked about it in Resurrection Eyes, you, the, you have to enter the kingdom like a child. So Luke 18, to give us a verse, learn this well, unless you receive the revelation of the kingdom, the same way a little child receives it, you will never be able to enter in. Now, hear that in context of what's being said today. There's a revelation being released today. If you can't receive this revelation the same way a little child receives it, you'll never be able to enter into it. It's not just does heaven exist revelation in the dream only the children could see that the tree of life had been been rewritten only those with childlike faith trust and dependency on jesus are able to receive and believe the revelation that they are the rewritten tree of life if you don't have childlike faith you will never believe that told to you you'll never believe that you're the rewritten tree of life that you're supposed to rewrite the tree of life you won't a shut-down heart, a guarded heart that doesn't trust and doesn't believe out of self-protection will never believe this. That's why he gave us the first word, resurrection eyes first, because he has a pathway to sustain and maintain your childlike faith so that you can. All the revelation he's pouring out in this season that he has on his heart to pour out, he wants us to be able to receive it and believe it. I wrote this that um, to live believing in our true potential according to God's design requires ongoing childlike faith and trust. Ongoing, that's the key. Again, it has to be ongoing. You can't just have it to believe it once because then life will beat you up if you don't do this process that he, he told us at the beginning of how to keep it going, how to guard and protect childlike faith and trust. If you have broken trust, you need healing in that place. All of us have it. All of us need that, and it needs to be a priority. Because you won't be able to do any of this. You won't be able to live the life that he's called us to without it. I wrote this just on a whim. I realized I said a child dares to dream. For them, the dream of what could be is greater than what appears to be. Isn't that true? A little kid, they see a firefighter, and they're like, yeah, I want to be a firefighter. They dream of being a firefighter, and in their mind, they are 100% capable of becoming a firefighter. They're not right now. They can't even walk straight. You know, they can't even pack their own food or go to the bathroom possibly, you know. Uh, but a child doesn't care. They're like, no, that dream 
speaks louder than my current circumstances. And that's what we're going to have to carry out of here because this is an invitation into something that we aren't experiencing yet. And we have all this year to discover it and to continue to build on what he told us last year. And so we're going to have to have be able to dream like a child and say, I believe that is true, even though I can't see it, even though my life and the way my relationships are and the way things are going for me and the condition of my soul don't look like it right now. I can believe in the dream, the dream of what could be what God says you have the potential to be needs to be greater than what appears to be in your current circumstances. And finally, the last point, the writing circling the snake emblem. Now, in the dream, I couldn't actually read what that writing was, but I felt like this verse, it had to be what had to be there, right? So again, Colossians 1, 26, there is a divine mystery, a secret surprise that has been concealed from the world for generations, but now it's being revealed, unfolded, and manifested for every holy believer to experience. This is our key verse. This is a key verse for us in both both words, okay? God is saying there is a divine mystery and it's being revealed, unfolded. This picture of the tree of life being rewritten are the lines that we get to color in and explore. It gives us a structure to discover and investigate with him. And so the writing around our emblem here says that the divine mystery now revealed is what it says, but we put it in Greek to make it really cool and authentic. And so that actually says, Totheo Mysterio Apocalyptite Tora. Isn't that fun? It just sounds cool. You can go home and practice that. Totheo Mysterio Apocalyptite. That's a fun word, Tora. The tree of life has been rewritten, and it tells the greatest story of all time. The tree of life has been rewritten. It's been done. Remember, he said, I'm making all things new. It's been accomplished. And it is the greatest story of all time. We honor the author of the story when we believe his writing of the tree of life stands alone, is fully sufficient, and deserving of becoming our story. It's time for the resurrection life of Jesus to be revealed through our humanity. For we are moving from one brighter level of glory to another, being transfigured into his resurrected image. The divine mystery is now revealed to us, and God wants everyone to know it. The tree of life has been rewritten. Isn't that awesome? It's so, so exciting. So, so exciting. So we have more for you, but let's take another break and give us all a chance to stretch our legs and go to the bathroom and then another five to 10 minute break. And then we'll, we'll decide what we're going to do from here today. Thank you for listening to this message from One Life OK. For more information, please visit us at onelifeok.com.